You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, from the Washington Post, Ben Goliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Man, I was laughing at myself over the weekend because I spend months getting ready for the playoffs. I'm sure a lot of the Open Floor Globe members out there are just like me, you know, counting down the days. But seriously... You know, since January, basically, I'm already in playoff mindset. By early March, I'm doing those playoff look ahead. Who's going to be the X factors, possible matchups, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, breaking it down. But once we actually get to the playoffs, it is crazy how quickly the cream rises. I mean, it took eight days basically for me to be over the the initial thrust of playoff excitement and to just be like all right let's get some of these teams out of here <laughs> Orlando Magic we're done <laughs> Brooklyn Nets we're done with you even Utah Jazz a team that I liked all season long we're basically done with you ditto for the Clippers right down the list I mean it's pretty crazy within the next two days I think we could have seven of the eight first round series decided and I'm not sure exactly where you want to start on that, but that's my my feeling. It's just the sensation of uh, of wait, 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 and now we're hurrying up. Yeah, it is really funny. It's we're recording this on a Monday afternoon, and Monday morning, I was talking to somebody about all this, and like the difference between how I felt last Monday and how I feel this Monday, a week into the first round, is pretty hilarious because. Last Monday, I was coming off that first weekend of games. The Sixers had lost. It felt like anything could happen in this first round. And I was just like, wow, these games matter again. April Madness. This is amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. And then today, I'm just kind of like, all right, let's move to the second round. The second round is going to be epic. I can't wait. But um, but yes, I definitely identify with what you're feeling with some of these games. Because like I watched... Toronto and Orlando on Sunday night and it was over by the end of the second quarter yeah, and it's and like, like okay yeah don't get me wrong there's been good things though right I mean Pascal's been playing amazing Jokic's game four was crazy the Clippers come back in game two it's not like it's been a bad first week but it's just I mean it, there's this distortion effect of like how quickly we got here you know yeah yeah absolutely well listen let's start with one of the biggest storylines of the first round I mean, it seems like everyone is sort of taking their shots at Russell Westbrook today. Uh, And I don't know, I have mixed feelings on it, but let's start with Hamid, who says, aren't the Blazers and the Thunder basically the same team? Everyone keeps pointing at all the holes the Thunder have, holes that are now amplified with PG-13 being injured. But if CJ or Lillard were hampered with an injury, wouldn't the Blazers be just as limited And Ben, I think that's a really interesting place to start because I agree that these are basically two flawed teams, both of which are fighting through injuries, both of which were ripe for an upset. And ultimately, I think that is what makes the whole series a little bit more damning for Westbrook. I mean, we're talking about two teams that are basically on a level playing field. And a lot of this has come down to Westbrook versus Lillard. 
And that battle just hasn't been close at all. And so I think it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room with Russ right here. So what do you think? What's your read on all this? Well, my first read is that everybody got the shovels out for Earth Day, and they just kept them out for Russell Westbrook's legacy. I mean, this guy (laughs) is going to be getting buried this week. There's no question about it. And frankly, I think his play warrants it. In terms of the comparisons between the Thunder and the Blazers, I don't think it's perfect because this, this comparison undersells Steven Adams. He's a really, really good player, and he's been a good player for a while. And so I think, mm-hmm. uh, yes, of course, if Damian or CJ was injured, uh, you know that would be very hampering to Portland's efforts. But I don't think this was necessarily a fair fight on paper coming into the series. Now you're saying... What's been the difference so far through four games? Why is Portland up 3-1? I mean, it starts with the headliners. There's no question about it. Lillard has killed uh, Westbrook. He's beaten him on the court. He's beaten him as a shooter. He's beaten him as a leader. He's beaten him as a stable uh, personality, somebody that guys can turn to with trust. Uh, And he's beaten him in the media too. And, uh, you know, for Westbrook, this is humbling. Is he going to take the right lessons from this experience? Uh, I'm not sure that he will. Uh, but watching his game, I think, you know, sort of what I'm seeing is this. There's this narrative like, oh, three straight triple doubles. He must be the same player. Andrew, he is not the same guy. And look, of course, he's not going to have the same kind of uh, raw stats as he did during that MVP season. But if you really dig in and say, okay, where is his efficiency at? Where are his free throw attempts at? How is he shooting the three-point ball? Uh, You know, what's his overall true shooting percentage? You know, the kinds of efficiency things that matter a lot for him because he's such a high usage player and because they've designed their entire scheme around him. He has taken Mm -hmm. noticeable step backs from a couple years ago. So it's not like he's just randomly having a slump here against Portland. I think it's evidence of a shifting player uh, at a different point of his career. Now, still physically, he's one of the most overwhelming guys in the league. There's no question about it. But he has to mix those skills uh, and, you know, the stubbornness that makes him great and some of his other positive characteristics with sort of a base level of efficiency. And that's the biggest difference between the Blazers and the Thunder. Portland can shoot the basketball, and that matters a lot in the playoffs. Um, It's mattering more and more every single year. And OKC hasn't found a way to get Westbrook to become a shooter, and they haven't uh, complimented him with enough shooting threats uh, to cover up for his own uh, regression here the last couple seasons. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the difference in his game because I think that's easy to miss in some of these conversations because a lot of people are talking about Russell Westbrook this year as if this is the player he's been for the last 10 years and now it's time for a reckoning where we all kind of come to terms with like the blind eye that we've turned to all of his weaknesses, which in some cases is true, but in a lot of cases kind of overstates the flaws he's had all along the way because I think this version of of Westbrook is different like last night Sunday night in game four I watched him pull up for a foul line jumper that like hit the side of the rim it was like if Nerland's Noel had been taking a 16 foot pull-up jumper and look you can criticize Westbrook's three-point shooting and you should over the last 10 years but that foul line jumper was something that he was great at over the years. That, that little pull-up sprinting toward the hoop. And he's now had a couple knee surgeries. His health has not been great. And his body isn't quite the same. And the jumper hasn't been there all year, even in the mid-range. And I think that really changes things when you're talking about what he can be on offense. 
and it changes the conversation going forward. Yeah, especially because he's not getting to the free throw line quite as much either, right? So if you can't shoot at all, your natural uh, instinct as a guy with his skills is to just go to the basket as hard as you can, play after play after play, and make up for it at the line. But he's not really yeah. doing that, and he's not—he's never been a great finisher around the rim. So taking away what was, as you're describing, one of his most dependable weapons sort of leaves him looking around for other answers. I think he's tried to compromise by you know more drive and kick stuff. But again, the Thunder weren't built for that. They weren't built for Westbrook to be like this drive and kick guy, surround him with four shooters like the Milwaukee Bucks, and it's going to be this super efficient offense. They were built with him being like, you know, the alpha and the omega, handling a lot of the scoring load, him and Paul George. And uh, everybody else is just sort of a bystander. And now those bystanders are be calling, being called into duty and they're not ready. They just wanted to be bystanders. Yeah, it was weird watching that second half of game four. I think Russ took like seven shots and it just seemed kind of out of character. Like maybe he knew that they weren't going to win the game and he didn't want to go down in a hail of bullets again where he goes like six of 25 or something in the second half and it was almost like he had made a conscious decision to sort of quote-unquote play the right way totally he's trying to play the right way he doesn't really it's not natural to him you know well and it's hard because then you're kicking to like terrence ferguson to, to miss 15 threes from the corner or raymond felton to take a three from the wing and it's like that's not a solution either so he's in a really tough spot And you said something to me early in the series, and I hate when this happens, but every now and then one of us will have a take that makes the other one jealous. And somewhere in the middle of game two, you came out and said point blank. It was probably like the first quarter of game one, to be honest, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you said this series is the end of Russell Westbrook's prime. And I was very jealous because it all kind of clicked for me right then. Like, yep, this is it. We are never going to be able to think about Russ the same way after this series because it's a combination of factors where, A, his body isn't quite the same. B, he hasn't had success in the playoffs with this team ever since Durant left. And at some point, that has to matter. And I just think that we're getting to a place where the Thunder are never going to enter the postseason without us asking whether Westbrook is good enough to make this work. We're just going to enter a completely new phase with how we think about Westbrook and his place in the NBA. So what, what do you think? You were the one who came up with this in the first place. Well, the first thing I want to say is, you know that adage, you know, money doesn't change you. It just kind of brings you know, the true version of yourself out or something like that. I think aging kind of does the same thing for NBA players too, right? Like, Aging doesn't necessarily transform you overnight, usually, but it does Mm -hmm. sort of bring some of your flaws up to the surface. And the things that people were killing Westbrook five years ago, as you pointed out, they may or may not have been fair at that point. But now they're fair, and in two years, they're going to be really fair. And we've seen this with other players in the past. I mean, Melo went down that path. I think John Wall is headed down that path. I mean, there's been other guys who have sort of kind of gone through the same thing. It could be injury-related or age-related. Uh, those flaws start to just slowly you know, be, you know, come to define a player. And I think for yeah. Westbrook, I've always granted him that top 10 NBA player status because the consistency of winning, the statistical accomplishments, um, his motor, uh, his power and influence. But what you could see in this series is that the Blazers are not intimidated of him, scared of him in the slightest. In fact, they're taking that same blueprint that has worked for teams in past years where kind of let Westbrook beat you 
And they're just daring him to shoot play after play after play. I mean, the reports from the courtside reporters were embarrassing for Westbrook. You know, the Blazers coaches screaming, get away from him. <laughs> do let him do whatever he wants. <laughs> I mean, and that's one of those things where, you know, three or four years ago, he probably could have made you pay at least well enough, except maybe on the very highest level, you know, Western Conference finals or finals. But this is yeah. in a first round series against an injury depleted team who's getting huge minutes from a guy like Enos Cantor that they picked up off the scrap heap, and they're still able to make that strategy work. And so that is a reputation changer for Westbrook, you know, if and when they lose this series. There's no way around it. And he's kind of out of excuses, right? I mean, he got the the grace period after KD left, so no, everybody wrote off that first year. Everybody chalked up the second year to Melo, and there's no question about it. Melo was really, really rough uh, you know, in that series. But right. now it's like, okay, Westbrook, uh, you know, you're going to be on the books for $40 million here. This is your team. The whole thing's kind of been constructed uh, with duct tape uh, as best as possible around you. Now what? Are, are you going to be carrying people through or is this as far as they're going to go? And I think so many other f- uh, fan bases would have soured on Westbrook by now. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. the alarm bells would have started to screech locally. And I'm starting to see it a little bit uh, from the OKC Beat Media. You know, shout out to Royce Young with some real daggers on Twitter towards Westbrook, some subliminal shots lately. I was surprised, yeah. But I still think the fan base is rolling with him. I still think they're in the bunker of like them versus the world. And to me, that might be the darkest part of this, Andrew. It's like, is it ever going to get better? Are you completely okay with the idea that, you know, he could be out in the first round for the next two years? And then, you know, the third year, maybe they don't make the playoffs, right? And then maybe at that point, you know, Paul George is looking around saying, you know, can I get traded? What's next? Um, I don't see a lot of optimism in the long-term view for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I guess maybe the most impressive thing Westbrook has going for himself right now is the blind Mm -hmm. loyalty from his fan base. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. What I would say to start is you kind of threw that in there and pinned the Jazz loss on Melo last year. To me, I think the Jazz series was actually more damning than what this series has been, um, or maybe equally damning, let's call it that. Because Westbrook in that series was just carved up. I mean, Donovan Mitchell was getting whatever he wanted uh, offensively for Utah, and Donovan Mitchell flat-out outplayed Westbrook over the course of that series. No doubt. And then hey, offensively... Just to clarify, like I wasn't blaming Melo for the whole thing. I, that was just the perception, right? Is the idea of like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Westbrook escaped some of the criticism because you have the scapegoat. And now I'm saying, who's the scapegoat? There's nobody, right? Right. Yeah, and I think Westbrook probably... I mean, he definitely took a lot of criticism coming out of that Jazz series as well. But that was the first time I looked around. And and you saw Paul George, too. Like, he was marginalized during some of those Westbrook games. And um, it just doesn't seem particularly healthy. And even then, though, even in that Utah series, there was that one half where I think Westbrook went off for, like, 40 points, took over the game, saved OKC's season, and it was really impressive. And so, like, he still has these moments where you're reminded of what he can do when everything clicks for him. Um, But it's tough for me. Like all of this, so many people who are anti-Westbrook strike me as kind of pedantic dorks and they end up lecturing him for not being perfect or not playing the right way. And I think that criticism is often overstated and it overlooks how incredible he can be and how even in light of the, the parts of his game that are frustrating, like... 
he still makes the sport a lot more interesting. And like, I don't always love Westbrook, but I'm glad that he exists. So there are times when I feel compelled to kind of speak up on his behalf and play devil's advocate because the truth about Westbrook over the last 10 years is that like, he's never quite as good as his believers say, but he's also never as bad as the critics make him seem. He's never as counterproductive and... I think his impact on the Thunder has still been a net positive over the last few oh, no years. No question. But it's getting tougher, you know? And I think that's the thing is that, like, as his body starts to deteriorate and as his jumper disappears, it's just going to be harder and harder to kind of reconcile all this because he's just not as good as he used to be. He's not what he was in 2017. And the worst of his game now hurts more than ever, and it's harder to ignore. And um, I like I, the other thing that I would add here, actually, is like OKC has done a horrible job of holding him accountable. And so he's developed habits even over the last year or two that are more obnoxious than ever. Like the one thing I've seen him do a lot this year is like he'll get a no call on offense, he'll get pissed off at a ref. And then 30 seconds later, he'll just lunge at someone and foul them out of spite on the next possession. And it's just like, what are you doing? What point are you trying to prove by gambling and just and like fouling the crap out of someone? And there are a lot of those moments this year where it's almost like he's becoming more impetuous as his game declines. And that's why I think the whole conversation is going to change over the next few seasons. There's no question. I mean, I think I called it martyr ball a year or two ago, right? It's not hero ball. It's even worse. And I think he's really diving deeper and deeper into that stuff in in the ways that you're describing. Allow me one brief uh, interlude here. Last year during that jazz series is when I really got serious about the whole idea of playing with purpose versus playing with a purpose, (laughs) right? And the idea that yep. Westbrook's running around like a chicken with his head cut off, and meanwhile he's got real no 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 real direction to how he's playing. Uh, one of our Open Floor Globe members pointed out that I should be trying to explain that saying to you because you always pretend like you don't understand it by using Westbrook and Lillard as the examples, right? So in this series, Westbrook is playing with purpose. He's running around the court. He's trying to do whatever he can. He's trying to compensate like we've described for his lack of shooting. Uh, he's trying to be that emotional leader by talking trash and rocking the baby and pointing at Lillard and all that stuff. Whereas yep. Lillard is just going about his business uh, you know, taking sh- shots that Westbrook is basically giving to him, even though he can hit him, uh, paying attention to the scouting reports, understanding how they're able to exploit Westbrook's weaknesses. He's basically playing chess, right? And carrying his team with that quiet leadership so that everybody's feeling involved, everybody's feeling confident, even though they're on the road in Oklahoma City, which is a tough environment, and they're able to come out of there with a pretty stable and pretty large uh, you know, game four win that, that swung the whole series. I think that basically yeah. illustrates exactly what I was trying to say. I mean, Lillard was taking into account his own strengths, his opponent's strengths and weaknesses, his teammates' strengths, and he's you know providing a vision for how Portland can get through this series. Westbrook is just not doing those things. Westbrook is just doing Westbrook, and, and you're seeing it uh, you know play out. I mean, after their games, like. I feel so bad for Billy Donovan. Like, what's he even supposed to say? Like, Westbrook goes out there and shoots five for 21, and he gets, you know, all these questions about Westbrook shooting, and Donovan is just, yeah. like, tap dancing around the answers and the questions. And, you know, like, he just, 
you know, if we gave him truth serum, he'd be like, yeah, we have no chance to win ever if our main guy can't shoot better <laughs> than five for 21. What do you want me to say? You know? And yeah, well, and that's where you, the conversation with Donovan becomes like, I don't know how you hold him accountable, but whatever you're doing right now is not working. And some of the decisions he makes, some of the fouls on defense, like there are just a number of times where you're like, so is no one coaching Russell Westbrook? Can no one kind of rein him in at any point during the season or the playoffs here? Like, it's not great. Um, to be very clear, though, Ben, I have always, and not, I know you know this, but for any listeners out there, I understand the <laughs> point you're trying to illustrate with your purpose versus a purpose dichotomy or whatnot. Um, my issue is with the language you have chosen to convey that message, the pablum here that you're foisting on the masses, but, uh, I'm with it. And, and look, there's no question that Lillard is channeling his energy in a more productive way. I also think that Lillard deserves his own conversation at some point because watching him in this series has been awesome. I mean, he, at, at this point, he kind of reminds me of like, Dirk in the middle of his career where you don't know if he's ever really going to turn the corner and win a title and whatnot, but like just the way he's leading that team and the baseline that he gives them every year is just really, really cool. And, um, and you can see even the the role players, like they know that Lillard is going to hit them when they're open and Lillard is going to trust them when like, Al Farouk Aminu is wide open for a three on the wing or Mo Harkless is in the corner. There's like something empowering about Lillard's presence on that team that isn't true for Westbrook. And that's again where like this series in particular is underscoring a lot of the areas where Westbrook is lacking. And, um, and it's a tough situation, you know? Yeah. You know, on this Lillard point. So when Westbrook's trash talking in game three and, you know, trying to rile him up and all that. You know, I kept thinking of that phrase, like your mouth is writing checks, your butt can't cash, right? Like he's just getting so into this uh, this uh, head-to-head comparison. And I thought Lillard handled that whole thing just brilliantly. And uh, the poise factor is something that he's definitely had to work on. I know everybody saw that viral clip going around where Westbrook is basically saying, like, I've been busting you for years, you know, talking to Lillard. Yep. And, and everyone's kind of pointing to that. Well, look at the turning point. Look how well Lillard's played after that. Uh, the truth of the matter is Lillard was getting worked by all NBA point guards for years. Chris Paul used to destroy him. Westbrook used to destroy him. I mean, this is going back a few years, right? So he's had to age into a lot of the skills that we're describing. And he probably had some of those characteristics, you know, the the poise factor, the calm demeanor going back to his rookie year. But to really see it be fully um, unfurled in the playoffs has taken a while. And I think it's not just him, CJ McCollum too. After the game, CJ was talking about, hey, you know, we're in a different place than we were these last couple of years where we got swept. You know, we're able to handle adversity better. We stick together. We trust each other. You know, they've been through some battles together. And, you know, that Portland supporting cast, uh, you know, is is pretty anonymous and it's not the most talented in the world. But the, the trust factor is definitely there with that group this season. And there's no doubt that, like when they got down in game three, they had a, a faith in Lillard that he was going to try to pull them back in the third quarter, and he did it. 
Same deal with game four. And uh, again, I think you have to give credit to the leaders there, but also to the overall culture and probably to Terry Stotts too. You know, I mean, he's had a, a pretty tough job there in Portland with dealing with hot seat uh, conversations year after year. Uh, you know, the front office seemingly has been frustrated with him at various points over these last couple of years. They continue to overachieve in the regular season. And I think that this is finally, you know, their one win away from having would be kind of a signature series victory for Stotts here, uh, given that, you know, they, they sort of retooled and rebuilt after LaMarcus left and they were sort of looking to kind of take that next step and have some sign of progress. And this series win would be that. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think that it's easy to act like it's Damian Lillard and a bunch of anonymous guys who are basically replacement level NBA players, um, which I guess in some sense is true. But I will also say that watching the Blazers, like a lot of those guys are perfect fits as role players. And Aminu is a great example where like even after they won game one, where a lot of the role guys didn't show up, you could forecast the rest of the series and say, all right, well, there's going to be one game where Al Farouk Aminu hits four or five threes and is really valuable on offense because that's just the way he is. Like once every five games, he shows up and is great on offense. And the same is true with Mo Harkless. And like, and in the meantime, those guys are really valuable as kind of versatile defenders. And so like the shape of, of Portland's team makes sense. And, um, and Dame deserves a ton of credit for keeping everyone together through adversity that would have fractured a dozen different teams who went through what Portland has gone through over the last two playoffs, um, and particularly that Pelican sweep. So big picture with the Thunder, though, and with Westbrook. I mean, the one thing that I wonder about uh, is, like, would he have just been better playing two guard for the last 10 years? And is that kind of like the original sin of this Westbrook era? Do you have any thoughts there? I mean, when he was at his best, the ball was in his hands and he was breaking defenses down and he was either setting KD up or, you know, the ball skipping a little bit and they're, you know, they're able to get good shots uh, for his supporting cast. So I think you're losing some of that if you move him off the ball, right? And yeah. I, I think that he would have maybe... If he had less touch time, he would be even more frantic in the touch time that he got. Now, if they could have paired him with uh, a, a smooth shooting three-point, uh, just three-point specialist on offense as that point guard, who was also like an above-average defensive player, um, and just gone kind of like with like a two-point guard configuration, where you know essentially Westbrook exactly. gets to have the ball, that would have been helpful. Um, but I also think you know if we're trying to not relitigate the last five years and do this going forward. It is really, really hard to build and construct a quality offense if Westbrook is going to be using as much of the possessions as he does because he just can't shoot. His shooting is that damaging. The turnovers are there. Some of the recklessness and decision-making are always going to be there. And Paul George is a really, really, really good player. Kevin Durant is a phenomenal player. He's had those guys, and they still have not gotten their offenses uh, anywhere near where they should have been in, in terms of the overall team efficiency and everything else. So that's not to say that Westbrook is squandering all this talent around him. Uh, but I do think if you're doing the mental exercise of saying like, what can Sam Presti do to like turn the thunder around and like try to get them out of the first round of the playoffs going forward, basically all he could do is close his eyes and pray that Paul George plays in April and May, like he played back in January, right? Like, isn't that sort of their formula for success? Otherwise, I'm not sure what they can do. 
Yeah, I mean, when George was playing like one of the three best players in basketball, the Thunder were fine. Uh, But even when he was doing that, I didn't think that was the real Paul George, which is why that leaves OKC in in a tough spot. And it's hard to gauge how much the injury is affecting Paul George. I think it's probably affecting him a lot. And we're going to find out whenever this series ends that George is more injured than has been reported. Um, But yeah, I I don't know. The Westbrook thing is tough because I go back to when the Thunder were at their best when Harden was there and when they made that finals run, James Harden was running a lot of pick and rolls in the fourth quarter and Westbrook was off the ball, terrorizing people, cutting to the rim and it all just kind of worked and he was able to sort of like harness his kamikaze energy off the ball and um and give teams all kinds of problems but then the thunder worked because Harden was much better running the pick and roll and and it sort of weaponized Hard- what Harden was best at what Westbrook was best at what Durant was best at and the big screw up obviously was trading James Harden because when you're going down the list of point guards who could theoretically fit well with what Westbrook does well. It's like James Harden, maybe Mike Conley, maybe Drew Holiday, but the list isn't very long and um, because you need someone who's going to be efficient with limited yeah. touches I mean, you're describing, to run the pick and roll. You're describing building a dream team so that a team could actually be good with Westbrook. This is what I, I mean. Know. It's rough, dude. And, and they had it, though. That's what's so frustrating is that it was all kind of right there. Um, the, the only other thing I have to add while the entire internet is burying Russ on Monday is that he has also had some like incredibly huge games. One thing I did this morning was go back and look at his playoff run in 2016, the final, uh, the final year with Durant. And that was a series, like I mentioned it earlier, it was close with, with San Antonio And Westbrook down the stretch of that series was so, so, so good. Just basically ruining Tony Parker, tearing him to shreds. He had 35, 9, and 11 in a a pivotal Game 5. He had 28 and 12 in Game 6 to close out the Spurs. And then even like midway through that Warriors series, he had 36, 11, and 11 to to put the Warriors up. uh, No, sorry, to put the Thunder up. 3-1 and then obviously it all kind of went sideways from there but like my only point is that Russ has had his moments where he absolutely does deliver on the biggest stage and I think there's we're all kind of at risk of making the mellow mistake where we look at the final chapter of his career and then basically say that he was trashed the entire time and I think that's a big mistake no it's a point well taken but I also think that his fans have been so hard-headed and defensive about all criticisms that they still yeah. haven't gotten the message. <laughs> like it's gonna, no, it and- might take three <laughs> more years of you know continued degradation of his skills before they finally come around. And that's why that's why I'll repeat what I said earlier. The most impressive part about Westbrook is the fierce and undying loyalty he's able to inspire. There are very few yeah. players who could shoot as poorly as he does perform as inconsistently in the playoffs repeatedly as he has and still have the diehards ready to, to you know, goat Brook and stand out for him and all that stuff. It's <laughs> wild. It, it is wild. And what I would also say is like, I understand why anyone wants to be critical of this dude. Like I saw Matt Moore on Twitter this week. 
asking why Westbrook engenders this much backlash. And, and I really don't think it's that complicated. I think people watch him play, and there are so many times during the course of a game when he is obviously forcing things, he's obviously trying something that's going to be a bad idea, and it doesn't work, and he just has no ability to adapt in those moments. And after watching that for 10 years, of course people are going to roll their eyes at some of this and say, God, I'm sick of this. I can't believe OKC doesn't have another plan. This guy is making $40 million a year right now. This is just going to be a horrible, horrible situation for the Thunder. And I think that's kind of accurate. And um, so I, I understand the backlash too. I just think peak Westbrook was a little bit of a different story. And, and that's ultimately the takeaway from this series is that that peak is over and, and the prime is over. You had the correct take 15 minutes into game one or whenever you texted me. I, th- I agree with you. This is the end of Westbrook's prime. Well, it's it's unusual and a little disconcerting when we agree, so we better move on. Ben, today's show is brought to us by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Robinhood. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 most popular with Robinhood. You can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of OpenFloor a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at floor.robinhood.com. That's floor dot robinhood.com that's floor.robinhood.com all right let's get back into it we need to talk about my boston celtics ishan says i'm curious as to why you guys continue to cut the celtics so much slack they've been lackluster and mediocre all season long and haven't shown any signs that they are a championship contender Yet you guys continue to defend this team. Can you please provide a reasonable rationale for protecting the Celtics and continuing to believe? Ben, what are your thoughts here? I feel like I've been crushing the Celtics for three straight years. Is, <laughs> I know, is Ishan, that's why it's funny. Is Ishan listening to the podcast? Come on, Ishan. Um, no, I think, first of all, I was actually impressed by their first round series uh, sweep of Indiana. Now, I think we agreed a long time ago not to give Indiana too much credit for how good they were, not to take them too seriously in the playoffs. I'm pretty sure I convinced you into kind of like patting them on the head for their stability during the regular season, fighting through the adversity. You know, Nate McMillan deserves a lot of credit for that and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. But this was not a real threat type team. And, you know, same thing goes for the rest of the teams in the bottom of the Eastern Conference. And I think that they all of them have been exposed in, in one way or another here uh, in the first eight days of the playoffs. But Boston's central issue was that they would feel themselves too much during the regular season, right? They'd win three games, then lose three games. The, the consistency of focus 
is what was missing. And some of that was a Kyrie issue. Some of that was, you know, uh, attention between, uh, you know, roles of guys who are maybe taking a half step back because Kyrie is uh, back in the fold this season. And some of it, frankly, yep. was probably just boredom too, right? Like they knew that they were really talented and, uh, the, you know, the games in January and February are di- more difficult to get up for uh, when you realize, you know, you were in the Eastern Conference Finals last year and you're better, you know, top to bottom on your roster this year than you were last year. Against Indiana, they had multiple opportunities for that flaw to show itself, right? I mean, there was a couple of games that went to the fourth quarter, a couple that went down to the final couple of minutes. They were on the road in Indiana where, you know, that's not like the toughest place to play, but it's still a road environment in the playoffs uh, between, you know, four and five seeds. So usually you expect uh, some home court advantage to take place there. And it really didn't. Yeah. I mean, they controlled a lot of that series. Kyrie, you know, took over. Uh, right on schedule late in those games. I'm not going to be, you know, standing out here and celebrating him for being able to beat Wesley Matthews one-on-one and like, you know, (laughs) out dagger Bogdanovich or something like that. I mean, it's not like, you know, we need to be doing cartwheels here and and giving him, you know, postseason MVP love or anything like that. But he did step up when it mattered. And I think that their consistency factor was impressive. But here's what worries me. They're about to go from zero to 60, right? Because I think their offense to me at times in that series was still choppy. Credit to Indiana's defense and style of play for uglying it up a little bit. But still, I just did not think that they scored as easily as the other top teams in this year's playoffs, whether it's Houston, Golden State, or Milwaukee, have scored so far. And so now they're going 0-60 to in the sense that Indiana had no offensive threats whatsoever. We know Milwaukee's got offensive threats all over the court. So if it turns into an execution game uh, where you've got to keep up, whether it's a shootout or whether it's just a pure efficiency thing where uh, you've got to go basket for basket, three-pointer for three-pointer with the Bucs, that's you know that transition concerns me, and I don't know if they're going to be able to make that leap up uh, from the first round to the second round. Yes, and that's a fair concern. Uh, there's a lot there that I have responses to. Number you one, you keep saying that. That must mean I'm going on too long. I apologize. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, we've never been known for brevity on Open Floor, but as far as the Kyrie, yeah, that's stuff a T-shirt is slogan. <laughs> he was phenomenal, okay? And yet, I, and I, as you know, I have a lot of take equity wrapped up in Kyrie, for better or worse. I am not going to spike the football after a couple big games against the Pacers team that was like a borderline playoff team in terms of talent and what they were bringing to the table. And Sabonis completely disappeared, which did not help their cause in that series. Um, obviously, Horford probably deserves some credit for that too, but like, I don't know. The Pacers were real shaky. I'm not going to really celebrate anything that the Celtics did over the last 10 days. However, I really appreciate where Ishan is coming from on this question because I think that's part of what makes the Celtics so fascinating to me is like I will watch this team and say to myself, man, none of these players are that good. Like I, I believe in Kyrie, but beyond Kyrie... Jalen Brown has moments where he looks shaky. Jason Tatum, I'm still a Tatum believer, uh, or at least more of a believer than a lot of people have been this year. Uh, But he also has moments where he's going to the hoop, and it's just like glacial. You're like, how are you this slow? Come on, you're 20 years old or 21 years old. Like, (laughs) make a play. And then you go to Hayward, and like Hayward on Sunday – 
had a breakaway dunk that Celtics Twitter was celebrating as if he like dunked from the foul line or something where he barely cleared rim. Like, I don't know. I came away from that play a little bit more concerned about Hayward. And granted, I know that he's looked good for the last month or six weeks and whatnot, but like, we'll wait and see. And then they have, they, they lean on Marcus Morris a lot, which to me is a massive red flag. Like as good as he's been at times this year, I don't know. I have a lot of experience with the Morris twins as a Wizards fan, and I don't trust them when it really matters. Um, so I and he, even Horford like is great, but he's had a lot of times where his limits have been exposed in high leverage playoff situations, particularly against teams with LeBron James. So I think anyone who looks at this team and says all these guys are overrated. They have all been like laughably overhyped in the media over the last seven months. They're they're not wrong. And yet what's fascinating to me about this team is like you still look at the way they're constructed and you can say a lot of the same things about Houston where like you go up and up and down the Rockets roster and it's like Daniel House and PJ Tucker and not a lot of guys that you're really going to like go to war with and, and feel great about living and dying with in Houston and the same is true in Boston, except that the the way they're constructed leaves them looking pretty dangerous in a playoff setting. And they and the Celtics may be even more dangerous than the Rockets because instead of Clint Capella, they have Al Horford, who's going to be able to guard people 25 feet from the hoop and and hang with them. And um, and Kyrie is has been more successful than James Harden in the postseason. So no I think I'd rather, there are still reasons. I would rather have Capella than Horford in this year's playoffs. I would rather have Harden than Kyrie in this year's playoffs. I know that you feel that way, but can you at least acknowledge that the outlines of a really dangerous team that's tough to match up with have been there all along with Boston, and that's why they're difficult to dismiss? I think Ishan is acknowledging a lot of that. I think he's just saying that the outlines, you know, the on-paper version that you've been hyping up since the season preview issue of Sports Illustrated hasn't matched the in-person version, and it still hasn't, Mm -hmm. even though they just swept the Indiana Pacers, right? We still didn't see it. I mean, if they had gone out there and put up like 125 per game, Kyrie's getting, you know, 38 a night, and it's all coming easy, Okay, you know, that's one thing. Uh, but that's why I think that I've been more impressed by what Milwaukee's done, even though their competition has been even worse than Boston's competition in the first round, because that's what they've been doing. They've turned their first round playoff series against Detroit into cardio. You know, that's all it is. They're just running up and down right. the court because it's not competitive, because their system is so overwhelming that Detroit has no hope whatsoever. Indiana had too much hope in that series for my liking. If, if you're trying to crown Boston as this like incredibly accomplished team, And that's why I think they're going to feel the jump from the first round to the second round more than Milwaukee will. But at the same time, Milwaukee's going to feel it too. It's going to be a very interesting series. Um, And Boston's ceiling is definitely higher than they've showed, you know, during this season. But I think you and Ishan are basically looking at the the scenery the same way. You're just pointing out the opposite sides of it, right? Like he's giving you the glasses half, half empty version and you're trying to fill the glass up as much as possible because for some reason, (laughs) Kyrie's now your favorite player. No, I don't know what I believe, except that I do trust Kyrie with the game on the line in big playoff games. I absolutely trust Kyrie, and that's where you and I have been... I've given him more of the benefit of the doubt than maybe what he deserves because of that trust in him when it matters. But the other part of this is that like, I watch the Celtics a lot, and I'm like, God, this team is overrated, and none of these guys are really that impressive. 
Um, and I don't know what to make of where they can go from here because I like I think I we're not to the Bucks Celtics series or preview or whatever, but like I, I'm gonna have a hard time picking against Boston just because I believe that they're so well constructed for this type of series. And um, and you talk about Milwaukee having scoring all over the floor. I guess so. I, I mean, like, they've got Chris Middleton and Giannis. And if, if Al Horford can can guard Giannis one-on-one and hold him under 35 points, then the rest of the Bucks still have a lot to prove. Yeah, I don't think you should judge Milwaukee by his individual pieces. It's about the strength of the whole, right? And, and same thing goes defensively, by the way. I think their team defense, like their ability to lock in and help each other and, you know, play on a string is better than Boston's mm-hmm. shown uh, so far, you know, during the playoffs. I mean... Indiana's offense was terrible. Some of these shots Darren Collison is getting and taking, it's just like you just sit there <laughs> and you want to just turn the television off because it doesn't even feel like – I mean, they're scoring 74 points in game one. It's like, come on, guys. Like This is 2019. That's a half for the Warriors, right? Like That's like a, qu- yeah. a quarter and a half for the Rockets when they're really clicking. That's what you can do in 48 minutes. And so, um, you know, well, it wasn't like they – That's You know, I'm not giving Boston's defense credit for that. I think just – you know, Indiana was not good. And not only that, the Boston, like, they would have these cold spells where the offense would just kind of disappear in short circuit for five and six minutes, and Indiana didn't have enough firepower to punish them for those stretches, and Milwaukee definitely will. And you talk about Milwaukee's defense, I'm interested to see how much Budenholzer is willing to adapt if the Celtics start raining threes in from all over the floor, which is a possibility. I think the biggest factor for Boston right now is that Jason Tatum is beginning to look like the Jason Tatum that we were expecting to see all year, not the Jason Tatum who couldn't hit a shot for two months during the regular season. And if he's reliable then they're going to probably alternate big games from Hayward and Jalen Brown as a third or fourth scorer, and they can really do some damage if, if Tatum is is making shots, and this all assumes that Kyrie is going to show up as, as well. So, like, there are a lot of question marks, but um, they're going to also be a really, really interesting test for Milwaukee. And to me, I think this is basically like the de facto Eastern Conference Finals in the second round. Interesting. So why are you so dismissive of your guy, Kawhi Leonard? Because you were mentioning take jealousy earlier. And the only thing that you've said the last two months that I wish I had said was that people are sleeping on Kawhi. (laughs) I'm kidding. But you did say people were sleeping on Kawhi. And he's had a couple performances here against Orlando that have been like, oh my goodness, type performances. I mean, the 37 and the bounce back in game two, and then his game four performance as well, where he's just doing whatever he wants. The ball's looking like a grapefruit in his hand. Uh, You know, he's He's more physical, getting to his spots, uh, just kind of yeah. uh, undeniable uh, in a sense. And it did look like some of his peak years there with the Spurs where, you know, Duncan finally phased out. So it was like Kawhi's team and, and he was looking like, you know, one of the best players in the playoffs. He's back to that level. Don't you think that should scare uh, either Milwaukee or Boston uh, pretty considerably? Yeah, and it, it, I shouldn't say, I mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that either of those teams beat the Raptors. Um, and I do think that Kawhi is for real. And when you watch him against the Magic, and granted it's the Magic, but like he can just overpower people and get whatever look he wants in the half court. And that's really, really valuable when he's just sort of rising up from 15 feet and he's basically automatic from there regardless. Um He's been pretty awesome, and we'll see what he does if the, if Philly advances. Yeah, I need to call you to the carpet. We're going to see his two-way. 
What's that? Okay, because <laughs> we know Kawhi is amazing, and it's going to be a big factor in that Philly series like you're mentioning. You had serious doubts of pa- about Pascal Siakam. I want to know, have you been convinced by this Orlando series that this guy is the real deal? Because I saw some people saying he arguably was more valuable so far in this series than Kawhi. Um, I'm, you know, you can go either way on that one. I mean, he's been really good. Kawhi's been phenomenal, like I just mentioned. Are you ready yeah. to believe the hype in Pascal and get behind the NBA's most likable rising star and, and likely most improved player, or are you still dubious? I love Siakam. I was only dubious when there were Raptors fans coming out of the woodwork saying, we're not going to trade this guy for Anthony Davis. We're not going to trade this guy for Bradley Beal. <laughs> He's Draymond right now. Like there were, <laughs> Yeah, there were some ridiculous claims made along the way during the Toronto regular season. I will say he is worlds better than I realized when we talked about him in the middle of Anthony Davis trade discussions where like, first of all, you still trade Pascal Siakam for Anthony Davis, but he's, he's awesome. Um, and he, his offense is further along and his defensive versatility makes them a lot harder to dismiss in the playoffs. When I talk about putting either Boston or Milwaukee in the NBA finals, it's because I just don't totally trust anyone outside Kawhi and Siakam on that Raptors roster, and I may be proven wrong there. I'm totally open to that possibility. The the Kawhi stuff, like, he had his game in, I believe it was game two, that was very nearly, like, shot for shot as dominant as Kevin Durant in game three against the Clippers. Yep. And he just, like, he has every opportunity to go in and put his stamp on the entire playoffs here. And we'll see if he can keep it rolling. But there are, there have been nights over the last week where you look up and you're just like, God, I can't believe how dominant this guy For is. For sure. He's got quite the wingman. I mean, I think Pascal is an interesting X factor in that Philly series. I don't know exactly you know, how do they handle him or, or what kind of an impact he, does he have? Does Embiid's presence wind up taking away some of what he's doing? Um, or not, but that's when I've got yeah. circle for sure. The thing you mentioned about Anthony Davis, it just reminded me, sidebar here, Steve Kerr is treating these post-game podiums uh, like a podcast, like he's got his own NBA podcast going <laughs> on right now. I don't know if you saw him just cracking on uh, Anthony Davis for not dressing himself and uh, for wearing that that uh, T-shirt, the That's All Folks T-shirt. And then the other day he was going off about Westbrook and how his treatment of Barry Tramble, the uh, Oklahoma City reporter who he's been in a standoff with for uh, months, if not years now, is being very damaging to the NBA. I swear, Steve Kerr might have more heaters about other team stars than we've got. Well, and that all of this only makes me more excited to get Steve Kerr's honest take on the Warriors like 10 or 15 years from now. <laughs> We're going to need like an extended grace period, but I'm Coach's sure tri- he has some thoughts. Coach's <laughs> Tribune first person essay? It, Exactly, exactly. Start his own website. He could have a weekly post on stuff that we lived through like 10 or 15 years beforehand. Um, anyway, let's get... No, I loved it. I, I sidetracked this whole thing. Let's get back to the Celtics. Did you have any final thoughts on, um, you know, I mean, are you going to take them over Milwaukee? I guess that's my question, really. My final thoughts are twofold. One, anyone who doesn't believe in the Celtics is not wrong at all. Two, I think that this is the most talented, best constructed team in the East. And I, ooh, I, I don't want to do it, but I, I do think they're going to end up beating the Bucks, and I don't feel great about it. Um, but yes, that's, that's how I feel. 
And in in large part because Horford is that valuable, Kyrie is that valuable, and then there I believe that they're going to get enough from Tatum to be really hard to stop offensively, and um, and it's going to take like superhuman Giannis to go beat them, and maybe he'll have it, but I don't I don't trust the other Bucks very much. The one thing you should say though, or I should say, we should say, whatever, um, it's a podcast. But the Bucks are approaching this in a much more encouraging manner than the Celtics. Like the Celtics finished those four wins against the Pacers, and then Kyrie immediately comes out and is like, you know, the regular season doesn't matter. Like we do, we're throwing the records out before you play the Bucks. And like I would like to see just a little bit more deference on the Boston side instead of a bunch of quotes confirming that they didn't learn anything from this regular season. Whereas the Bucks, you hear them come out and they're talking about like, we recognize that blowing out the Pistons proves absolutely nothing. We all feel like we still have something to prove and we're going to go do our best to go out and do it. And uh, I think that's probably more encouraging if you're a Bucks fan than if you're a Celtics fan. You know, but you know, we'll see where it all ends up. You know uh, what I want to see? What? I want Nick Monroe of the Milwaukee Bucks to print out what Andrew Sharp just said. The treasonous <laughs> Andrew Sharp just said that the Boston Celtics don't, are going to overcome don't. Giannis Inc. and the Milwaukee Bucks. And I want that printed out. I want that transcribed on Bucks.com. I want that on the bulletin boards <laughs> in every single locker room. I understand that uh, you know Giannis you know, tends to have a very careful routine when he goes about his day. I want you interrupting his routine pregame to let him know exactly what Andrew, alleged Giannis Inc. co-founder, has said about him. <laughs> I, I can't stand for it, Andrew. That's that's despicable. Well, first of all, first of all, it's Giannis Inc. It's not Bucks Inc., number one. Number two, Nick Monroe knows that I have love for him no matter what. I have love for all of the Bucks and um, would be thrilled to see them win and spend my conference so why does finals this, in Milwaukee. Why does this sound like a breakup letter then? Come on. Oh, yeah. I love these guys, but, but, but you're well, going a different but, direction. I see it. Hey, look, I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, this really sets it up. Let's go, Milwaukee. Come on now. I'm not ready to cut ties with my Boston Celtics. Um, let's keep it moving, though. Nate says, should the Nuggets consider trading Jamal Murray for Ben Simmons? Who would win that trade? Could this be done? Um, My reaction to this hypothetical, Ben, is that the Sixers, if they ever traded Ben Simmons, would try to trade him or should try to trade him for like three or four good players that they can kind of pepper around Embiid uh, to build out this rotation in a, a little bit more balanced way. Whereas if the Nuggets trade Jamal Murray, they should try to pair him with a couple of their solid rotation guys and and bring back like a bankable All NBA star. Um, yeah, when you're when you're trying and, to put together that kind of package for Simmons, would you be looking for guys like I don't know Covington, Sarich, and Shamit? I mean, what are you looking for? <laughs> I would, Three or four guys. You're saying Shamit. <laughs> it is amazing to me. That of all the assets the Sixers have burned through over the last four or five years, losing Landry Shamit is going to potentially be the toughest blow to overcome morale-wise. Just because he's been <laughs> yep. so fun with the Clippers. I told you, he's, he's a, a very solid. He's a baller, dude. He really is, and I just can't believe it. And they need a Redick replacement um, at some point here. They can't keep running Redick off these screens for the next 10 years. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. The Simmons trade, the bottom line is you're probably not going to get the value you're seeking for either one of those guys, which is why neither one of them will be traded. Um, the Nuggets deserve a ton of credit for coming back and winning in game four. That one really caught me off guard. I have no idea how to read Spurs Nuggets at this point, but switching Gary Harris onto Derek White certainly seemed to have worked out well for Denver. Yeah, well, my thought from that game four was, remember when I put that quote to you from Nuggets GM Tim Connolly where he was just like gushing about Jokic and how playoff ready he was going to be, and we both kind of sat there and were like, well, a lot of those things might be true, but like, what about the defensive side? And he struggled so much defensively in game three. It was like very scary and like, oh, this series seems like it might be over. His bounce yeah. back in game four, I mean, he did it all. It was a really, really impressive performance. And all of the, that gushing was like coming back into my head on a loop. And it's just like, oh, wait a minute. Like the Nuggets do <laughs> the Nuggets do get to have a nice little day here. Uh, it, well, they deserve a ton of credit. I mean, they basically, their season was over in game two also, where, you know, entering the fourth quarter, it was like, okay, so this is it. The Nuggets are exactly who all, all the haters thought they were. Like they... They looked every bit as fraudulent as um, all the like mouth breathers on the internet claimed they were all season. And then they came back and played their asses off. And it was just that couple that with the Jokic performance in game four. And it's like, wow, like this team has something. And I think it, that it's impressive and encouraging for the Nuggets. Whatever happens the rest of the series, it's like, okay, so this whole season wasn't a lie. Like we've got some real heart here no matter what. And then uh, there's there are additional questions I have about the Spurs where they just kind of die out of nowhere sometimes, and that does not give me a ton of confidence in them going forward yeah, in the playoffs. I'm not even going to dwell on DeMar DeRozan getting ejected from another playoff game. <laughs> I, I was kind of clearing the runway no, no, no. for you, but I enjoy you taking the high road. I'm going to move past this to make a different point. I think Joel Embiid has probably been the podium MVP of the entire postseason uh, I mean, he's going up there as if it's a comedy show and just doing these like full routines. I mean, slapstick, you know, night after night after night. But Jokic, uh -huh. his efficiency on the podium was amazing. I don't know if you saw all the questions that were being asked to the Nuggets because they hadn't beat San Antonio on the road in any game since 2012. So the reporters were asking each of the Nuggets players like, hey, where were you in 2012? And I think Jamal Murray was like three years old. So he like had no memory <laughs> of what he was doing in 2012. And same thing for other guys like Torrey Craig and on down the list. They asked Jokic, where were you in 2012? And like he hates the question just like right off the top. So he does that eye roll thing where his eyes like go in the back of his head like three times as he's thinking. Uh -huh. And then he's finally like, you know, I was probably riding horses. And he just paused for a beating. He's just like, yeah. And that was like the answer. Like <laughs> Everyone should go watch the clip. I'm not doing it justice. It was hilarious. So I don't know if you know about his like horse racing background, but apparently like probably the heaviest player in the NBA in a past life when he was a teenager competitively raced horses. And he was in one of those little buggies behind the horses. Cause obviously I'm not sure if they could put him on top of the horse might not be good. Yeah. Might not be good for the horse. Um, so anyway, I went down a rabbit hole finding about Jokic's uh, other professional sporting interests before he chose basketball. Uh, but go check out that uh, that post game clip. It was incredible. <laughs> him and him and Embiid, really they're always uh, they're always linked together. You know, whether it's all NBA first team debates or the podium MB MVP debates, uh, there's two sides to every story. Embiid's winning with volume, uh, Jokic winning with efficiency. Yeah, well, Jokic has some deadpan humor that I really enjoy. The Embiid 3-1 stuff, 
um, after game four Uh-oh. in Brooklyn. You, you thought I, it was corny, didn't you? It was, first of all, corny. Second of all, not a joke. Just saying 3-1 and mentioning the Warriors is not actually funny. Uh, but he, like, <laughs> cracked up on the podium. And uh, and it did remind me of Russ, to bring it f- full circle with the opening segment, where Russ is cracking up on the podium in the middle of that Warriors series and never won another game against Golden State. I hope that's not the direction we go in this Philly Brooklyn series because I would rather have Philly in the second round, but it did kind of set off some alarms in my head where I was like, first of all, this isn't funny. Second of all, this is a bad idea to do in the middle of a playoff series, but Embiid does not have an off switch and that's why we love him. So more power to him. I actually thought he was funny. I don't know how you got so grumpy over here. You call me Gramps all the well, time. You I love just... texting me, oh, Gramps this, Gramps that. Now you're over there, <laughs> one of the funniest, good-humored guys in the league. And look, I'll admit, some of his tweets bothered me in years past because I thought they were kind of juvenile and petty and, and kind of below. Well, and because you're a grandpa. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, even I could get a little laugh out of the 3-1 joke. I mean, it's an easy joke. It's an easy target. Uh, but just the whole thing with Jimmy Butler standing up and leaving the press conference table. I mean, there was some good team humor there. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I enjoy uh, BG Studios, Ben Golliver Studios, chronicling every podium highlight and low light throughout the postseason. It's basically how I watch any of this. So yeah, don't even watch the games. The <laughs> just, just the clips, yeah. right? You, exa- well, I don't even know where you watch the press conferences. I think NBA.com has a has a live feed of it. Is that correct? I've got a couple of uh, outlets, Andrew. I don't want to give them away. Spoil, you know, it's the secret sauce. <laughs> I've had people, I've had people from other media organizations come up to me and say, "How does Ben rip that video so quickly?" So it will keep it a trade secret. But um, all I'll say is that I'm not seeking out NBA TV to watch these press conferences. Because I've got my friend Ben, you know, chronicling everything I need to see. Let's finish up with two questions from Jazz Rockets um, and also a little bit more on Net Sixers. The first is from Ruben, who says, How much should we take away from the Rockets' Game 3 victory? They came out with a win despite James Harden's historically awful performance. Um, I don't know if it was that historically awful. Not as much of an outlier if you're familiar with Harden's oh, playoff on, history. Come on, but um, first of all, moving it wasn't on. historically awful because he did a lot of other things to help them win. But this question from Ruben kind of brings me full circle to my point from the start of the podcast, where it was like we're in the stage where it's time to just get some of these teams out of there. If you can't beat the Rockets when he's going three for twenty. You don't deserve to mm-hmm. do anything except for plan your summer. And it was the same deal with the Clippers. Like Steph had one of the worst shooting nights that I've ever seen in person from him. And, you know, if you want to start talking about, you know, stars and, and postseason moments, I think you might want to look at your guy Steph a little bit more here than you have been recently. Um, but if you can't beat them when he's missing his first, what, seven three pointers and, uh, you know, can barely buy a bucket in game four, then, you know, at home, you deserve to go home as well, Clippers. And, that's, you know, that, that kind of underscored it to me. It was like, all right, we've officially moved from like the hope springs eternal phase of the postseason to the like, all right, weak stuff out of here. Let's move forward after those two games. Yeah, I agree with that. And so we should end by focusing on two teams that may not still be in the playoffs by the time we podcast later this week. What do we think of Donovan Mitchell and D'Angelo Russell after these playoffs? Because... 
I, this is something I was asked on a podcast, Fast Break Breakfast, that I joined uh, Monday morning for a 20-minute segment. And I, I think it's a, a, a good topic. It's like Donovan Mitchell, I'm not sure where I put him. He was great over the final four or five months of the season, but he's looked really, really limited against this Rockets team. And then D'Angelo, obviously, is like... Uh, 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 third rail subject for this podcast, but give me your your impressions of, of both those guys. <laughs> you, the, you you sidetracked me with the fast ba- break breakfast podcast, so I did that one too. But I was like the worst guest because he's from Memphis, right? So like they have good food mm-hmm. in the down south, and he loves breakfast so much he named his podcast about it. Did they ask you a whole bunch of questions about your breakfast habits? Because he was asking me, and I was like. Yeah, usually I have like uh, a plain bagel with light cream cheese from the Marriott Courtyard. Like I was just like the <laughs> the worst breakfast answers. Did you get those two or no? He did ask me. What'd you say? My answer, 98% of the time, I do not have breakfast because after I eat, I have a hard time being productive. So like uh, most days I do not eat anything until about seven or eight at oh night. Oh my God. Um, you you yeah, run on hunger. So. <laughs> well, except Monday morning, I was having trouble kind of getting going, and in a moment of weakness, I went and got an everything bagel from Starbucks, which is like the most depressing version of a bagel you can get. And uh, so not only do I not really care about breakfast, but the breakfast that I did eat before this breakfast podcast <laughs> was like the saddest possible version of a, of a breakfast. So yeah, I was a letdown on all yeah. fronts. I, I guess. was like, how about black tea? That's a good one. <laughs> like, seriously, I, <laughs> exactly. I hardly ever eat breakfast either. Anyway, uh, yeah. on your coffee and nicotine, I don't know. <laughs> hey, come on. We got kids listening. Don't say that. Now, That's true. Uh, Donovan Mitchell and D'Angelo Russell was your question, right? Mm-hmm. Mitchell to me is a victim of his own hype and actually you could say the same thing about Russell because the hype came this season but Mitchell just punched above his weight class in last year's postseason there's no doubt about it like that did not feel sustainable at the time and that's why it was so much fun at the time it was just like holy cow this guy, this guy is incredible he's so young who knows if he's going to be able to do it again like this you know every single year going forward but you know what a remarkable story uh, Houston, and I don't even know how much credit we give to Houston's defense, but I think he's had 64 points on uh, 64 shots. Uh, turnovers yeah. have been a huge issue. Uh, he missed the big three-pointer at the end of game three. I don't think we should hold uh, that against him. And I actually really liked what Kyle Korver said after that game about you know, basically stepping up for Mitchell and saying he, you know, he carries himself with class and dignity and uh, he's accountable. And you know, is the, the, that's just one shot in his career. Don't overreact to it. I thought all that stuff mm-hmm. was right. Uh, but he's been thoroughly outplayed. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He's come crashing down to earth. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I still think he's been a lot better than D'Angelo Russell. Uh, I mean, I think Russell is like bottom five uh, in the entire playoffs in plus minus, even though that series has been you know somewhat close at various points. Uh, I have not been impressed by his overall offensive impact. And then defensively, I mean, we know what he is there. So to me, if you're saying compare and contrast these twos, I'll still take Mitchell over Russell, really no question about it. Uh, and I also think Mitchell's had a tougher first-round opponent uh, than Russell has. Uh, but yeah. neither one of them has been, uh, you know, they're both going to be rushing into summer. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I think, well, on the D'Angelo front, um, I, again, want to double down on arguing that the Harden comparisons are not crazy because aesthetically their games are pretty similar 
The key difference is that Harden gets to the line 10 times a game. D'Angelo Russell is almost never at the line. And that's a skill that I'm not sure you can teach because Harden was getting to the line at abnormal rates even when he was coming off the bench for Oklahoma City. So some guys either have that or Dude, don't. Har- and Harden's I don't know also D'Angelo. built like a fullback and Russell's built like a punter. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's part of the story and part of what you have to consider when you think about what he can be. The other thing with Harden, or the other thing with Harden and D'Angelo is like both of them go through games looking like they're playing at like half speed, and and Harden throws some passes that can look kind of lazy, where he's just kind of like flinging it across court. But those passes are really effective when Harden makes them. And he's not actually lazy and not actually sloppy. Whereas D'Angelo Russell has a lot of plays like that that are lazy and are sloppy. And so he needs to tighten a lot of that up if he's going to actually be good in the NBA. And his shooting needs to get better, obviously. Yeah, I mean, Russell um, the same is true. He plays like a multitasking James Harden, right? It's like he's he's scrolling through Twitter on his phone while he's trying to run the offense. <laughs> That's what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, and it's tough because I think there are definitely times where like that pass he had to Joe Harris in the final minute against the Sixers is completely lost to time because the Nets blew the game at the end of the game and the Sixers came through with that Mike Scott three yada 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 but that was a great look to joe harris and that was kind of what i was talking about on the last podcast where like his vision is real and he can be kind of a nifty creator but he needs to to sort of again just tighten up his game i hear you because Um, at the same time like he's forcing things to jared allen late in that one game and then the other game he's just stepping out of bounds on an inbounds pass because they're throwing it to him and he's not actually getting himself open you know what i mean so like yeah well and i don't know what he's shooting it can't be much higher than 30 percent in this series which isn't good enough um and the same is true with donovan mitchell obviously where like he's a guy who if you tell me he's gonna shoot 40 percent from three for the rest of his career or even like 36 or 37 percent like he will be good, and he finished the season really, really strong for Utah and was great for them, but I don't trust his jumper at all, and um, I guess like to return to the beginning of the podcast, I think the key difference between Westbrook and Lillard is that Lillard has gotten incrementally better at everything he struggled with through the first four or five years of his career, and that's why right now he is like head and shoulders above Westbrook in this series because Westbrook has never been able to address his flaws. And with Donovan Mitchell and D'Angelo Russell, I think they're both, they they both have shown enough early on to convince teams to believe in them, but they're also pretty far away from where they need to be if they're actually going to be superstar point guards who can carry a contender. And, um, and it'll come down to which one of them recognizes that and how effectively they're able to kind of address their weaknesses. And uh, we'll see. I, de- I believe in Donovan Mitchell. I think like he has all the intangibles, but I think he might actually be kind of less likely to succeed than D'Angelo Russell because he's not a natural shooter, whereas Russell, I think, is. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things about Mitchell's game that just usually I don't love about players. Like, you know, kind of the... The inconsistency shooting, like you're mentioning, you know, some of the other just efficiency-based flaws with his uh, offensive game. I don't think he's the world's best playmaker for his teammates either. But the thing that concerns me the most is that he's basically tied to Rudy Gobert here going forward, right? 
And with mm-hmm. Gobert, I think we're seeing there's a pretty hard ceiling to where your team is going uh, if he's got to play playoff minutes, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure how you get around that. Uh, unless the NBA style of play radically changes here in the next couple of years, the Houstons and Golden States of the world are just going to have a, a field day with him. The big problem for any playmaker who's trying to get into the teeth of the defense, if you've got a traditional center, uh, you can use him to a certain degree, you know, pick and roll finishing and all that, but he's also just in the way, right? And so it's some of the same things I was saying about Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid's fit uh, applies, if not more so, to the Mitchell and Gobert fit, because I think Mitchell's efficiency numbers would look a lot better if he's playing in a five-out system where he could just kind of go one-on-one, get into the paint, and have a better chance finishing through less traffic. And I'm not sure he's he's yeah. ever going to have that, is he? I mean, isn't he basically locked in with this group for at least the next five years? So I think he's going to be subjected to some of these same criticisms uh, about, oh, look at his field goal percentage number, or, oh, look at some of these wild shots that he's taking, and so forth. Um, and it's not all his fault. Some of it's going to be uh, derived from the and from the pieces what? around him. It's also not all Gobert's fault because the other guys on that Utah team just aren't scaring people in the playoffs. Right, I, I for mean, sure. I no think question. Ingles, like, let's say even if they Ingles is real. if they even upgraded all those other pieces, two, three, four, right? Or they kept Ingles and they upgraded yeah. two, three. Uh, you're still in a situation where there's two more bodies than usual in the paint, or two more bodies than ideal in the paint. And I think if you look at Steph Curry's finishing numbers, they're out of this world. And a big part of the reason why is there's not a lot of, uh, you know, guys in the middle that use their centers as passers so effectively, or they go to those spread lineups. And every time he takes a layup, every time he drives the paint, he's one-on-one and, you know, there's not a lot of traffic and he can just kind of finish. And, you know, often he's cutting into wide open space and it's just easy stuff. Life is really hard mm-hmm. for Donovan Mitchell, you know, basically every single possession. And some of it's because the lack of shooting or the lack of perimeter weapons and, and creators like you're mentioning. But some of it is just the physical presence of Gobert and the guy who's guarding Gobert always being in the general paint area. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think ultimately, if you're talking about Utah and what they're taking away from this Jazz Rocket series you're right to hit on Gobert as the real question mark and the real kind of factor that you worry about going forward. Whereas Mitchell, I think there's still enough reason to believe in him. And then the D'Angelo thing is even crazier because the spectrum of outcomes for him are all over the place. And like someone's going to have to pay him a max deal this summer. That was my question. Maybe it'll be Brooklyn. For you, you, who would you rather pay a max deal, Mitchell or Russell? Um, Karis LeVert <laughs> would be my third option there. So He's balling too. He has go. another great story, by the way, from these playoffs. I was mentioning Pascal and, and Jokic and a few others. I mean, LeVert has been really, really impressive. He's awesome. Um, and I just hope he stays healthy because he's a guy coming into the draft. Uh, I say this often, but I did really like Karis LeVert coming into the draft. And the whole question with him, the whole league's question with him, was whether he could stay healthy and knock on wood let's keep this rolling um the fact that he's been able to recover as quickly as he has from the injury earlier this season is like kind of mind-blowing so we'll see and ben on that note um let's come back later in the week man i'm i'm very excited for the playoffs to kind of hit another gear here in the second there's round. no question later this week we're going to be picking up the pieces from a lot of ending seasons right we're going to be writing a lot of obituaries uh because these next couple of days are, are going to be a bloodbath i suspect andrew the open floor globe can reach us at openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail 
at gmail.com. You could tell there was. And you know what, yep. Ben? I want to add one thing there because we have seen kind of a drop in emails Ooh. through the first week or two of the playoffs. Unacceptable. Um, Call them out. Get after them. <laughs> no, no, no. It's completely acceptable. But hit us up, you know, do our job for us. If you see something in these playoff games, um, always feel free to throw a take our way. And uh, I don't know. I'm excited for where we're headed from here. No question. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, too. Find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. And when you get there, scroll down. There's a section that says Rate and Review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. It really helps us spread the word. Gets the Open Floor name out to as many people as possible. We're also on the world-famous radio.com slash open floor check us out there and andrew i think i'm gonna bring back the lantern this week on instagram so follow me at ben.goliver check out my instagram stories i'll be putting out a tease at some point here over the next day or two that we can uh you know dig into and get interactive with uh, on the podcast later this week hey andrew until later this week i will talk to you all right man take it easy